Oh, oh, one more thing. Yes, Just One More Thing, a podcast about Columbo. I'm R.J. White. I'm John Morris, and on this episode, we'll be discussing Double Exposure, originally broadcast on December 16th, 1973, directed by Richard Quine, written by Stephen J. Cannell, and starring Robert Culp, Robert Middleton, Louise Latham, Chuck McCann, and, of course, Peter Falk as Columbo. Each time we're joined by a special guest in this episode, it's author of The Glass Eye, Jeannie Vilnasco. But before I bring her on, <clears throat> John, actually, um, John, I, if you give me just a second. <clears throat> What's that, RJ? No, I'm just, uh, I just uh, certainly come across a little uh, <clears throat> thirsty part. Okay. I'll be, I'm just going to get a glass of water. I'll be right back. You just just do the uh, the summary, and yeah. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be right back. I'm, so, I'm, I'm really sorry. It's unprofessional, but I'll, I'll be, I'll no, be right it's, back. It's fine. Just go it's ahead. Fine. Go ahead. <laughs> get your get your water. Relax yeah, a little. I'll be right back. Just kind of yeah, take right your back. time. I don't want to mess get the two drinks okay, just in case right, it's real quick. Right okay. Just go ahead and do the summary. No problem. Uh, okay, on this episode, uh, Dr. Bart Keppel is America's leading researcher into cutting-edge marketing techniques. He knows what makes the seller sell, the buyer buy, what the mind string is, and how to pull it. Despite all of his advanced marketing bona fides, laden as they are with beetly bogus pipe saw pop psych nonsense, there is one wallet Keppel just can't seem to keep open, his biggest client, Vic Norris. Norris plans to fire Keppel and his agency, either despite of or because Keppel is attempting to blackmail Norris, with photos depicting him extramaritally flagrante with a convenient young lady named Tanya Baker. When blackmail doesn't work, Keppel resorts to shoving salty snacks down Norris's throat and then shooting him during a screening of a subliminal-laden film short, which he's meant to be narrating. How does he get away with it? Well, Keppel pre-records himself, speaking into a bargain basement cassette deck, and then discreetly... ...switches it on in the middle of his narration in such a way that no one would notice anything untoward was happening. Covered by his missing ruse, Keppel returns to his gun-laden office with the murder weapon, a 45 automatic with a calibration converter to make it look like a 22 was used for the killing. And I did not know that was a thing, so personally, I am shocked. There, he hides it in his secret murder weapon vault, which is made of glass are and is hanging on a wall where everyone can see it. And water. it even has a little latch easier to get into. And the converter gets dropped into a lamp. All the bases are covered. But wait! Far-out space nut Chuck McCann, as Keppel's projectionist, has figured out how his boss arranged for Norris's murder right down to the subliminal ice tea. In exchange for his silence, McCann wants 50 grand in cash. It's for real estate, though. Right in the valley, that's a good investment. Unwilling to leave any loose ends, Keppel murders the projectionist at the theater down the street and then rigs up an alibi with the perfect witness, Columbo. It's a clever plot which ends up with two victims, a few shattered lives, and a totally ruined game of golf. It's up to our favorite rumpled detective to seamlessly... Splice together the clues and find the evidence hidden at 24 frames a second. RJ? Oh, hey, John. Sorry, I feel much better now. Okay. Okay, good. Good, good. good. All right, that's better. (coughs) Jeannie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, We have someone new on. Uh, We always ask him, uh, first off, 
how exactly did you come to Colombo, come to be a fan of the program? Sure. I mean, it's actually funny. My dad had a glass eye, and when I was a kid, um, he had lost vision in his left eye and had to get an artificial eye, and I was about four years old, and I had all of these, like, very kid questions, like, of what would happen to the eye and what the world would look like, and, you know, I was kind of pestering my mom with these, and she had told me, Columbo has a glass eye. And then after that, I like wanted to watch Columbo. It became like one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. Um, just because, I don't know, because he had a, because Peter Falk had a glass eye. And I had this notion that if he can solve crimes with one eye, then my dad will be fine. Um, and so that's how I kind of came to it. And also I just, I had older parents, and so I just was into older shows like that. Like, I wasn't into cartoons. I liked Murder, She Wrote and Columbo <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, both RJ and I are, are well into our 70s, and <laughs> so we remember watching the show sure. uh, just when I retired, I think, from uh, from, <laughs> right, from the Force. I was so going to say from it, the Force, but yeah, okay. From the Force? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it is interesting to talk to, to younger listeners cause you were, you were a kid back in the, I don't want to ask when you were born specifically, but you were a kid back in the nineties, right? Yeah, I was born, oh. I was born in 84. Okay. Yeah. Oh so, wow. Gosh. Okay. All right. Yeah. I said C like that was a revelation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So you were probably watching like, uh, they did the reruns on A&E and whatnot back in like in the nineties and stuff. I th- think that's the main place you'd be able to see this sort of thing back then. Um, so I, so it's kind of interesting, like uh, the 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 kind of associating it with your dad and actually using this sort of thing, like oh no, that's an okay thing because this guy on TV, he's doing all this, he's putting these people away, he's solving crimes, he's actually doing something, and he's, I mean, did it go beyond Columbo? I mean, when you were a kid, did you ever like seek out other Peter Falk stuff at all, or no, or? Um, no, I don't think so. I think I was so, I mean, as a kid, I just kind of associated him with Columbo. I mean, I was completely unfamiliar with his other work. Right. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, what? And, uh, when you were four, you didn't uh, try to see the in-laws? That's crazy. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but now I, now I do. Um, but, uh, no, I just very much identified him with Columbo. Uh, and that's how I saw him. And then as you kind of watched it, especially the years as he grew up, he's got older as an adult, uh, what, what kind of changed uh, with your perception of the show with that pretty much? I mean, kind of seeing it as, Oh, it's actually not a bad television show with the acting and the writing and whatnot. Yeah. yeah actually, I was, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I was actually, I was actually wondering when you were watching uh, Columbo with your parents, were these the old 70s episodes or were they watching the, the specials in primetime with you? I don't remember. Okay. Uh, and I didn't always watch them with my parents, but uh, I remember hearing, like overhearing people saying like, oh, the, the, like, the 90s episodes aren't as good. But I was a kid and I, I wasn't like particularly. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. I didn't have like, yeah. Um, like fancy taste. And, uh, and so I, I don't really remember actually much of that. I just really, I remember the experience of watching Columbo, but, um, not really the particular episodes. I know I started watching them differently 
where when I was a kid, when I, you know, would get into writing stories, I thought it was so interesting that all of them followed a very similar structure and that it wasn't about, I mean, a lot of people talk about this, right? But like that it wasn't this inverted structure where it wasn't about um, how, like who committed the crime, but, but the experience of Colombo trying to figure it out and that will how the the dialogue really advances the plot um, as opposed to a event. And so I think I started when I got into writing, I mean, obviously I didn't think about it in such lofty terms than when I was in, you know, like 10 years old, but... Oh, but it actually struck a chord. It seemed to like, oh, this is a different way of telling a story pretty much. It's usually not starting at the end and yeah, that's interesting. Right. Actually, you noticed that. No, that's cool. Wow. Well, yeah, because like all the, you know, Disney movies, which were very popular when I was a kid, the cartoons, um, right. you know, it was a very different thing. Like you you kept watching to find out what would happen. And um, and this was different. Oh, that's, that's really interesting, because I mean, like uh, when I was a kid watching this with my parents uh, much earlier, um, that was a thing that struck me, too, that it was so different from anything else I'd seen on television where wait, but I've already seen how this thing happened. Why are they showing this now and ruining the ending? And like, oh, okay. And that just kind of strikes you as different and just kind of sticks with you. Yeah, which I thought was, yeah. I thought reading the article you wrote for Powell's, which is more explicitly about the relationship with Colombo and your dad, um, it stood out to me that he protected you from violent media, if I'm getting this right. Right. And he, he also hated cops. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He didn't really. Well, I would say he didn't trust cops. He didn't really trust anybody. I mean, like, that's the thing I heard growing up. Like, you don't trust nobody. Um, And I know he would always get really nervous around cops. Mm. Um, So it was interesting that, yeah, Columbo's a a cop. Um, And and I didn't necessarily, like, extol cops like like other people in my town. so yeah. we're trying to get you on tape saying you hate cops. Come on, Jeannie. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, that, I mean, that's a good point because uh, Columbo, especially with uh, television detectives and police officers, is very, very much. He's not cut from the same cloth in that he works on his own quite a bit. Uh, he disdains using guns at all. Uh, yeah. There's not. I mean, aside from the horrible violence of murdering someone, there's not a lot of just terrible. Uh, uh, flagrant violence in these episodes and when there is it, it is kind of shocking and it seems different and it, they actually make a point of it like no this is a terrible horrible traumatic thing so I think the show as a whole did a good job of doing that presenting Columbo as being kind of apart from uh, a lot of the uh, detective shows you see on television so it seems right, like and- it, may, it seems like it kind of makes sense your dad would have kind of gravitated more towards this because it was just presenting it in a much different way. Yeah. Right. And he was such like a lo- Columbo, this kind of lone figure. Right. Um, oh yeah. 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 See his family. I mean, that was something I wrote about in Powell's piece when I was a little kid. I remember thinking um, that his wife was maybe made up and that he was just using that. And that my dad was like blown away. He thought it was like the most genius thing. Um, <laughs> and he was probably like, pretending I have no idea but um he just it it's interesting because he seems so mythic right like he we don't really see him in his um office he kind of 
just comes in from nowhere, it seems. And right, like just out of thing. nowhere. He's just a sort right. of he blows in, does this stuff. He's a very, very down-to-earth genius, and then just kind of goes out, and he's done, and he finished, and he's like, always right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, what I liked about this episode, too. I mean, I haven't gone back and rewatched much Columbo, but um, I watched this episode a couple times. But one of the pleasures from it, too, is, right, he outsmarts um, either rich people or highly educated, um, yes. very the, the, poor the, people. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's amusing. Like, it's... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the class thing is always, like, an amazing, wonderful thing throughout the entire series. Like, throughout the... From the 70s to the early 2000s, it's always putting uh, rich people or uh, very successful people in their place somehow who think they can kind of get away with murder. And it's like, no, this uh, little disheveled guy originally from New York City who was transplanted to the coast, nope, sorry, he's going to find you out and he's going to point out what you did and you're going to go away for it. Right, and the way in which the criminals talk about him, I mean, in this episode when um, Dr. Keppel, looking at Columbo, this was interesting because, like, you're watching Columbo, watching someone watch Columbo on a screen. Like oh, the supermarket a... scene. Yes, the supermarket scene is wonderful. Yes. Yeah, and when he's like, oh, follow that, the little fellow in the rumpled raincoat, like this yes. sort of patronizing. It's just, mm-hmm. I don't know, all, all these nice touches in, in the show, even like later on when um, he confronts the doctor, um, he's, uh, or Dr. Keppel, when he's golfing and Columbo mentions he's more of a bowler, um, huh, they're yes. just nice little touches, um, in terms of about class and like critiques, mm. not to sound like overly academic, but like a critique of capitalism. Oh, yeah, um, let's, let's get overly so, academic. Yeah. That. No, overly yeah. academic is fine. It's yeah. Yeah. Stephen uh, J. Cannell. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry to jump in. I just want to throw this in real quick. Cannell writes about this, uh, in retrospect of this episode. Oh, really? Where? And so he spent the first two uh, in the Columbo file, a oh, book that, by that Mark Dewinziak. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and he uh, he says he studied intensely the first two seasons because it was exclusively rich guys plotting out murders that ultimately go wrong. And later he said as the show included more crimes of passion, he felt that it was walking away from mm-hmm. what made that formula great. So oh. Culp is very much or Dr. Bart Kebbell is very much one of those rich kind of pre-planners that Cannell is talking about. Right. Pre-planners with a bad uh, fake voice. Yes. That, that, the voice he uses at the beginning to call um, uh, the victim's wife to like uh, set up this whole sort of affair thing. It's, oh, it, it sounds like Robert Culp, but kind of raspy. It's yeah, not, was- not really good. He didn't try a lot. He didn't try very hard there. It's kind of funny. Yeah. I feel like I need to jump in and defend our boy because <laughs> in this episode, I thought he was turning in maybe his best Columbo performance to be sure. Ooh, Robert Cop- No, no. I, Hey, believe me. I think this is, this is my second favorite Culp of the Columbo episodes sure. and his performance like throughout uh, watching it, uh, realizing like, Oh, his acting in this is great. Uh, but that voice, yep. it's a little like he, yeah, it was but a little his, weird. but his acting with the voice was superb. Oh, okay. When he was saying things like, I don't even know why I'm calling. I don't know why I thought it would help. I don't know what that voice is. No, that's but, close to what his voice is. Or he's so, saying, yeah. like, I mean, that's it. That's just where it is. And he's doing things that frustrated, lost people do. And I thought it was beautiful. And, you know, so would it sounded a little like Culp. I don't think he really knows the widow. 
Oh, right. Yeah, okay. You know, right. I well, think we're okay. Well, I'm sorry. The potential widow. The soon-to-be widow. <laughs> she wasn't quite a widow yet when he's talking to her on the phone, but yeah. Fair point. Um, so, the, the plot, <laughs> the murder plot of this one, the thing is, it's not the best murder uh, scheme. Even if like the Culp episodes, uh, but even yeah. also Columbo episodes, it's a it's kind of a weird it's kind of a weird plan. I, don't I have a wants pivotal to talk about question that. about it. I have a key question about it. All right. So uh, the the way this murder is accomplished is uh, he tries to blackmail Norris first. That doesn't work. Norris Norris isn't do, isn't doing it. Right. So he's going to kill him. So first he's going to have a party and spend a lot on expensive spend caviar. A lot on it, then stuff a lot of caviar down his mouth. Then take him to the movie theater where he has prepared a short. How long was he planning this? I think he probably knew that the guy wasn't going to come across, and then so he was ready he to do it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why he didn't put the subliminals in then. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, all right. It was so kind of absurd, which is what seemed like in this with the script when Columbo, I mean, he might repeat the question. Yeah, he repeats it a couple times, especially throughout the episode. And I think he has it might be one of the questions that was on the card. But like, how would the murderer know in advance? When right. Yes, he does or, ask that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it seems so obvious and so strange. Yeah, it just seemed very strange and elaborate and you would think that someone who's like what is he a, a motivation research specialist or behavior yeah um specialist that, that he's he a would... doctor not a mister he'll yeah. have you know I love that, multiple like, times <laughs> yeah he corrects Columbo with doctor i love that but oh yeah gosh. it seemed like very um <laughs> contrived but there was an acknowledgement that it was contrived from the very yeah. beginning that's a good point oh yeah yeah. You don't go into – if anyone went into Columbo taking notes for their own murder, they're going to get caught. Right. Because uh, they're right. all a little bad. But, I mean, just – I'm just getting focused on this murder was planned for weeks. Right. Yes. You like, know, he kind of wanted to kill the guy anyway. He must have. He must have yes. been thinking, even if this works out, I might kill him. Right. My biggest, yeah. my biggest client, which he says several times too, he kind of wanted to kill him for a while. To set up this yeah. elaborate plot in his own in in his own place of business, and I mean, I like, know yeah. I know all of the footage in the film is stock footage, mm-hmm. but I like to pretend he went on location for all of those. Even he was the rockets, about it even the rockets showing yeah. up. Okay. Oh, get me on that satellite! I really want to kill this guy. Sure. Maybe that's maybe that was it. I don't know. The bikini lady. Yes, all of it. I have a great screen cap of her. Because I saw, the look on, I saw that. Yeah, yeah today. Yes, the look yeah. on her face is not a human look. Well, and then also the the look of the people in the audience watching it, like the leering mm-hmm. sort of like, oh, okay, that's that's classy. Yeah, there's yeah. a little, there's a guy who looks like a bean wearing a pair of glasses, and he just <laughs> he gets all super. Like I know he was instructed to do this because it's such a weird, horny old dude thing but he like re- when he sees the girl on the screen he reaches up and starts caressing the armrest on his chair right it's gross yeah <laughs> capitalists not not as gross as uh colombo putting the spoon of caviar in his mouth and dipping back in like three times but still gross nonetheless 
Well, what's okay, so what's interesting about the caviar, like, which obviously is such like a rich person thing, but early on, he says he likes the caviar, but he didn't really, that's what he tells Dr. Keppel, which I thought was interesting. He made over like how good the caviar was when he was talking. Yeah, but then he actually doesn't, he was saying he didn't like it. It was was something too salty, so yeah. Yeah. Which I, I thought it was the other way around. I thought he really liked it, but he told him it was salty just so he could kind of corner him in that. Ah, uh, oh, oh, that it was informative. Okay. You know what he should have had instead of the caviar, though? Pringles? Raisins. Oh, right. oh got iron, <laughs> and they're full of iron. They're healthy. Right. Yes. Spoken by living cat cartoon, Chuck McCann. Right. Oh, okay. Do you want to talk about Chuck McCann a bit? That's weird. That guy. He's definitely the <laughs> he's definitely the poor bastard of this episode. Yes. Uh where he's just this kind of odd fellow, the protectionist, uh, who then tries to blackmail uh Robert Culp's character and ends up getting shot in a like a second run revival movie house for his troubles. Uh, and his whole thing was he wasn't going for like a big golden ring. He was going for a bit of scratch for some sort of real estate deal, which that's never... And I think it's kind of literary-wise, or literally... If someone's going for some like weird sort of desert Los Angeles real estate deal, that's going to fail anyway. And it always seems like it's kind of shorthand for a sad, pathetic thing. And so then this guy doesn't even get that, and he ends up getting just shot. Well, it's funny, he was willing... Yeah, when he was willing to, um, I thought it was interesting. He was willing to sign a paper that, right. can, yes. like a contract that he would be an accessory to a murder, for which seems sad, fifty thousand um, dollars. And I thought it was interesting uh, that nickel. I don't actually know how common that is, like that nickel technique of putting it on the reel, so that when the reel is done, the nickel falls. You know when to switch reels. Right. But it just seemed like money was such a, like it just keeps coming up in this. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He's holding onto a nickel while Keppel is holding onto a fortune. Right. And it was just weird seeing Chuck McCann in this because Chuck McCann is this kind of odd uh, comedian sort of uh, type who uh, I think you you brought up in your. um, Well, I don't know. I was out in the hallway getting uh, murdered at the. uh, Emily, you're getting some water. Water fountain, getting some water. Uh, Space nuts. He's been to think. Yeah, Far out um, space nuts is his big thing, yeah. Yeah, but then also, like I, I found, um, I remembered from a very old issue of Spy Magazine, uh, they did a LA issue uh, where they did a kind of a weird thing about uh, the folks and the hangers on at the uh, Playboy Mansion with Hefner, and uh, <coughs> as as recently as the late eighties, Chuck McCann was a guy who used to be there all the time, mm-hmm. which always just seemed kind of weird and sleazy. So I was associating with that, and it's kind of like oh, seeing him, especially with that haircut. Yeah, the weird, the weird posture he had when he was in the chair, it made it feel like the Chuck McCann talk show when well, he's he, chatting with... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's just when he's chatting with Columbo in the projection room. And I'm, I'm really trying to figure out what his posture was meant to convey. Because well, it's... Oh, I'm sorry. It, no, I think it's the it. delay. I don't mean to talk over you. No worries. No worries. Oh, go on. Sorry. I'll, oh, okay. I'll just, we'll edit this out. Don't worry. It's okay. a seamless, right. seamless production. I'm not um, editing anything, but go ahead. <laughs> Please. Um, but originally, I thought McCann was going to size Columbo up 
to invest in real estate or something because oh. he was giving these kind of like greedy, sinister glares. But it just turns out he has a weird face. But yeah, his, no, uh, his, gotta, it's peculiar. Yeah. His posture is super 70s talk, which is strange. If I hadn't known, if like in watching the episodes and watching the episode, we didn't know from the start that Dr. Bart Keppel had, you know, um, committed the murder. I would have read his character as being very suspicious. Uh, oh, yeah. It's him being the one who was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah definitely. Just, he was just had a, yeah weird expressions and like sort of uh, stilted dialogue slightly at, at moments. I don't know. Like he just he seems suspicious. Well, I mean, um, I think that's just kind of his kind of carriage. That's like guy. So it's it's really strange to see him playing any sort of drama role because anything I've seen oh, him no, is I, someone from the sixties and seventies doing goofy stuff. So it was weird seeing him. Yeah, I know doing what it this. is. I know why he looks so weird because he was he was sitting in the room with a little disheveled kind of dopey guy, and he rarely is on screen with someone like that, and he's not like yelling at them and hitting them with his hat or shoving them. Yeah, that's yeah. Actually, you're, you're, it's like oh, he just doesn't. I don't want to Bob Denver this guy. Right. No, like, that looks a like good, a Bob Denver. Yeah, yeah. Then with the uh, kind of weird page boy haircut thing, yeah, mm-hmm. that doesn't help. But that was of the time, I guess. I don't know. Strange. <laughs> and he was just marking time till he went to to the mansion, and some lady had to that's just touch so him. He's like, ugh, ugh, okay. ugh. hey, speaking of ladies, yeah. uh, I want to talk about uh, Norris's widow. Yes, that's who, a good role, who, and I love the way uh, Columbo handled that situation, too, in this. I do, too. However, <laughs> okay, that certainly escorted all the actresses off. Well, oh, yeah. Now that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, this was, this was a real Boys Club episode, and I'm a little upset because uh, I thought Louise was doing a very good job. Yeah, I And know. also, we're yeah. big fans of Arlene Martell, because this is not her first... Columbo, and I think both of them could have eaten up a little more screen time. Well, I think I, you and I were chatting. We brought you brought up the fact that, um, yeah, we never get to see this uh, mythical lady who is hired to entrap people. Yeah. We never saw that character at all, who was brought up multiple times uh, for the yeah. uh, victims. Yeah. Oh, I was curious because Tanya Baker, she's right. She keeps getting brought up, but I don't recall. We never see her, right? But Arlene no, Martel's never. So, Arlene Martell was cast and I think shot for it. I mean, oh, really? her scenes were shot. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, weird. Oh, I mean, but, yeah, but um, I mean, now. And yeah, she doesn't. Yeah. I was, I'd be curious to see that. It'll never show I was up, so excited yeah. for her to come on because we liked her in A Friend Indeed and we liked her in A Greenhouse Jungle. And then she's not here. Wait, who is she playing in the Greenhouse um, Jungle? She was the uh, the Daffy girlfriend. Oh my gosh, really? Oh, yeah. oh, for crying out loud, that's not whom I around again around huh. whom I would love to see a sitcom built. Right, of course. Um, but uh, oh, I was going somewhere with this. Oh, Tanya Baker, that's right. So uh, you know, Stephen J. Cannell, of course, creates uh, Rockford Files. Yep, and writes for Rockford Files. And uh, we've been desperate to find a way to connect Columbo with the Rockford Files to put them in the I, same universe. Oh, well, sure. We might have it because what? Tanya Baker it, uh, pops up in an episode of the Rockford Files. Wait, that character? Name? Really? Arguably, arguably, yes. That's strange. So it could be the same lady. 
Who knows? Sure, there you go. Yeah, well, look, I gotta, we'll say uh, it is. We'll say it is. Whatever. I got so I got to catch the episode, but we we might have united the universes finally. There you go. Oh, thank God, we can all go go to our graves knowing something's been accomplished. That's wonderful. <laughs> My God, we're only half through halfway through the podcast, and RJ's out. Well, no, it's fine. No, I mean that that's a good thing. I mean it's it's great. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, uh, yeah, I think we kind of skipped over the fact that um, Chuck McCann's character. Uh, who gets murdered three quarters of the way through, uh, has my name, which is fun. Yes. That's never happened to any of these before. Roger White, there you go. That's that's comforting. I didn't realize until you... <laughs> that's great. That just really put the poor man down there. Well, no, but put, put who down? Me down or him down? I don't know. Well, no, Mr. Definitely... Mr. Chuck McCann is a, he's a fine man, I'm well, sure. Well, no, I'm sure he is, but geez, I mean, like, uh, watching an episode of the show and, like, uh, somebody's murdered yeah. with my name. <laughs> we 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 see any uh, victims named John Morris throughout the the last uh, few dozen episodes. No, you know that's actually you kind of raise an interesting point there because I, that's I mean, a more like it's I, a really common name. Yes. And I've never actually seen John Morris in as a character in a movie except yeah. Castlevania. Wait, what? The video game series Castlevania. There's a character named Jonathan Morris. Oh well, okay. Wait, yeah. wait. He's a vampire hunter. Oh, well, that's good. Which, you know, that's like, we're like twinsies. That's better than a bat. The, uh, that's better than, oh, better than the bat. Better than a bat, yeah. It is better than the bat. Uh, so one thing I was, I was doing in this episode, since it's about subliminal sales techniques and it's about using implicitly film to, um, you know, coerce certain emotions and responses out of people. I paid a lot of attention to how this one was laid out. And there's a lot of interesting scenes that intentionally or no have like some semiotic quality or, you know, manage to create an interesting narrative synchronicity. For instance, we were talking about uh, the supermarket scene mm-hmm. and there's fantastic things that happen back there. I will start with um, Keppel and his little setup are behind the freezers. When Columbo comes and gets him, the more he rattles Keppel, the further away from the freezers they get. To the point where when Keppel really loses it and he does the Columbo speak for I'm guilty, which is, I believe, did it this ever occur happened. to you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did it ever occur to you, detective? Right. Um, he's most rattled when he's away from the freezers and he's drinking a coffee. And then he slowly regains his composure as he goes back to the room and goes back to all the freezers. Oh, huh. That was, that made less of an impact than I was hoping for. No, no. I mean, I just, I don't ever look for that sort of thing because I, for me, for that sort of thing, I always think about in terms of, um, where they were making and having to shoot that day and thought like, Oh, well that's setups. And where they are, but I think that might be interesting. That it could be that too. No, I think that that's that's a much better thing than thinking like, well, they had to go to that part of the supermarket they were shooting on location. Like your thing is way better than that. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure it was a case of you know they've got to look at where they're shooting and say that right. there's a reason to shoot this scene here and this scene here. Yeah, and obviously they needed uh, Culp and Falk to have some business to do while they were talking. And I think walking through the supermarket, interacting with the, with the shelves and then getting as far away and as warm as they can. I, 
it strikes me it must have been some kind of conscious decision. I, I and that scene, I was mostly concerned about the how awesome Robert Culp's jacket was. His that's such a good jacket. His, actually, throughout, Robert Culp's costuming was wonderful. I thought Robert Culp is a well dressed figure, no matter what they put him in. Yes, and especially in this one, I think I think this one was probably Robert Culp's handsomest Columbo, most stylish Columbo. I'll put that up as a poll on the Twitter. We'll Please see what do, because this one, uh, Laura and I, we were watching it, and she was like, "Oh, Robert Culp," and it's like, "Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't argue the point because yeah. yes, no, he is a stylish, handsome fellow throughout this episode. Um, mm-hmm. Part of it's the the production company's uh, costuming, and part of it is Robert Culp looked great at this point in his career." I think this yeah. was, yeah, he, he he looks, yes. It's right from, I tell you, man, from, uh, from like, uh, what's the name of the show? I can't believe I'm forgetting it. 87th Precinct, up yeah. through about, ah, Greatest American Hero, I'll give him about the first season, two seasons. That was a dapper little, little MF-er. Oh, no, yes, yeah, yeah, no, his yeah, yeah. I, His Law and Order appearance. His Law and Order go, appearance, he But you great. go back even farther to I Spy. He uh, dressed well in I Spy, I think, too. He looked great in I Spy, I Spy. So, yes. I Spy was after 87th Precinct, but... It was? It was I just one. Okay. It was just one appearance. Oh, okay. Hey, Jeannie, welcome to the show. Yeah, uh, sorry. We're talking, about, we're, talking about, we're talking about how hot Robert Culp was back in the 60s and 70s. What's wrong with us? Uh, I, the, I thought it was an interesting contrast, though, because in that moment, in that supermarket scene, too, like, we already, I already mentioned this earlier, but when he points out that, you know, like, Columbo is, like, that little, the little fellow in the rumpled... Yes. Um, rumbled raincoat like you like fashion does certainly like there is that contrast um i mean everyone's sort of better dressed than columbo which makes for such an amusing um makes it so much more amusing when he catches them i think but then i I love that scene though that kind of twists around where yeah he's got though the little rumpled guy but then columbo comes up and he's got his uh of course the usual uh paper sack full of stuff but it turns out (laughs) He's gotten all of the guy's books because Columbo's been doing the legwork and he's been doing the research. And I, I love that where he kind of turns it around in that scene on him a little bit because he's been reading up on him and what he does, which I thought was interesting. And it works well because it flatters him. And this is a character who responds to flattery. And yes, very exactly. Exactly. And, yes. and, I mean, like in a lot of Columbo episodes, it gets back to this idea though it's almost like Columbo performing Columbo like he's aware like what you were talking about with the caviar like later in the episode maybe he's pretending not to have liked it or you know whatever reason but sometimes you don't always know you're trying to figure out what Columbo actually thinks and sometimes it seems like he is you know he's putting one over just to further the investigation to catch the to get the person in a lie um but, uh, yeah, sorry, I don't know where I'll, I was going to go with that. <laughs> That's okay. We do that all the time here, so it's fine. It's, it's fine. The, uh, the thing I, besides the, the, the chili semiotics, which I'll, I'll plant my flag and just leave that one alone. No, it was uh, fine. It was a good point. It was a very good point. It was an interesting <laughs> Listen, thing. Please, I don't need fine. to do anything. That recording bit at the open of the show, gold. Oh, right, all right. But no, I mean, that's a good point. I think you, I think you have a very valid point that they might have been doing that. I mean, I, I would but watch the, it again, pay attention to that, like, oh, right. That's a good thing. And then in, intentionally or otherwise, the beginning of that scene, 
I love that Columbo and Keppel are hunting each other in these very different ways. And Keppel has his eyes everywhere. He's effectively up in the trees and he's just languidly watching Columbo move without ever letting him leave his sight like a panther. Well, Columbo is just like, he's like a scent hound. He's just relentlessly going through every aisle until he finds what he needs. Mm. And then he pops around the corner and gets right to where Keppel is. Right. But then and it's, it's, it's neat that they're both in each other's view the whole time in different ways. But then, like, uh, later on, uh, the golf course scene, which I think is very yes. similar to that scene, it's completely different because uh, Columbo's got the confidence. He, know he's, he knows he kind of has this guy. He just needs the last thing. And it's got mm-hmm. one of those things I love where he just flat out tells him, I know you did it. It's a matter of time. And then, mm-hmm. when the, and then when the murderer is actually just very arrogant about it, it's like, yeah, well, I did, but you're not going to find it out. It, it, that's one of the best instances of that in the series, I think. Cannell so describes that scene oh. as being uh, his ode to the classic Columbo finale, which goes this way. Uh, Columbo and the murderer would sit opposite each other, and the murderer says, you think I committed this murder? And Columbo says, ah, gee, if I ever made you feel like that. And the guy would say, cut the shit, you know, and I know that I did this, but you'll never prove it. So Columbo would force him into a second move, a stupid move, that would incriminate him in, uh, there, that was the ending, I went up instead of down. No, that's fine, (laughs) but no, that's, no, that's fine, because that's exactly what it is, yeah. Yeah. He's and very aware of what he was doing with this in the writing. That's you know that, that I love hearing that because yeah, you can tell he was a fan of the show and then tried to write his best Columbo mm-hmm. episode, which is neat. Yeah. I have a question though about the um the subliminal messaging when he ends up tricking Dr. Keppel um and it, it was that legal like on a legal level when he goes back <laughs> to oh. Oh, goes into the I, office oh. and he says, "I'm, I'm, I'm not searching. I'm looking." Right. Um, was, was that? I don't. I have no idea. I don't have much knowledge of this. But. Hopefully, Let's we can ask somebody at some point. But no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess, no. But close enough for I, TV. I, I don't can't know. imagine. I cannot yeah. imagine. And so court, you, yeah, and court having to justify that. Well, I. I took this pimply guy into the guy's office to take staged photos. Then I cut them into a film, and then he found the murder weapon. Uh, sure, that's going to hold up in court. I don't know. <laughs> but it seemed like, and one of the things I love is at the end, Culp's character is so gleeful that uh, Columba used his methods to get him. He'd probably, I gotta think he'd happily confess to anything. Because he seems so happy. That Colombo actually used his theories Possibly to trap so. him. Just the look of joy on his face when he turns around from his ridiculous <clears throat> computer console that's monitoring the um, uh, the Mercury spacecraft. In <laughs> I think that's how they managed teleporting back down to the exactly. Um, he looks so happy. I think he would have confessed to killing people in the previous five episodes for crying out loud. Do you know, I'm going to pull this one back. He probably would have confessed to the Hayward murder. Yes. I want to pull this one. Yeah, we should talk about that, but yeah. Uh, I'm going to say, actually, yeah, I think this is legal. Really? Okay. Because he had access to the building and no specific prohibition against entering the office. Right. He really wasn't searching. This effectively was just 
photos of evidence. And I think this falls under the, the police have a little leeway in compelling uh, uh, suspects to confess. I'm going to say this was legal. At the very least, it results in those wonderful We're take stills. To... Those wonderful still photos. Right. And we'll, which uh, are great. Which we'll, we'll have up in the... Bob Ingersoll. We'll have him up in a bit. Sure. We'll uh, take that to Bob Ingersoll and have him give us his opinion. I also want to know um, how cheap is that shitty hookah that Keppel has on his desk? Oh, I didn't notice that. Oh, it's a, it's, it just looks like he got it at a garage sale. Anyway. Right. Well, you mentioned also uh, Hayward. Yeah, there's a reference to another episode in this one. If you want to go ahead, John, talk about that a little bit. It's not, oh, the, first one. Uh, it's not the first reference to that episode either. I'll talk about that a little bit. The uh, It's really simple. He mentions uh, that he's working on a Hayward case, which is the case from Candidate for Crime. And that case will get another mention in the episode Publisher Parish when he mentions it to Jack Cassidy's Riley Greenleaf as a possible subject for a book. Weird. That is the most we have ever known about something happening in more than one episode. Yeah, yeah yes. I think because, like, uh, what was it? Columbo goes to college. There's a couple mm-hmm. odd references in the 90s. But, yeah, this is the one where, like, oh, they dined on this one for, like, three episodes, for crying out loud. Yeah. I was surprised to hear it. So, uh, getting back to the golf course. Okay. I always, you know, John, with my love of the links, I always love to get back to the golf course. Genie RJ, the Scottish, the, the Scottish game. Yes. Right, you can't say its name or else it curses. Oh mm. yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, my par but, gets terrible if I say golf. it. Yeah. Uh, what I, you know, I one of the things I I like to look for in stories is the transition of power between characters, and I really enjoyed this one because Columbo got what he wanted, but he was still put on his back foot at the end. He wasn't when, entirely sure he was going to get this, yeah. Yeah, and I, I genuinely love that, because normally it's it's pretty gradual and consistent through a Columbo episode that the power falls closer and closer to Columbo as it falls away from the murderer. So it's it's rewarding to watch it bounce. It gives you a little more rhythm to the episode. I'm trying to remind me... Um, at the end of the golf court, like that scene, and he's frustrated. I'm trying to remember. Was it? Oh, it was because he couldn't get the other. Um, unless he finds the other reel, isn't that it? The doctor couple says that's the. It's the. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Okay, I've been hidden. Yeah, I've been hidden or something. Yeah. But I love that scene. I especially loved how the dialogue had kind of drawn that out, where um, he mentions calling Tanya Baker. And then Dr. Keppel thinks that um, he thinks that, uh, um, oh, she, she didn't say she knows me, et cetera. And then he, Columbo kind of draws out the fact, oh, I called her collect and used your name. I just, oh, I right. thought that, that was great. So, yeah, was so that was great. so fun. Yeah, yeah. And the, yeah, the look of the look of a kind of like a bit of not really shock or surprise, but like the, Culp does a definite sort of like, oh, crap. On his face. Well, mm-hmm. When it's shifting there, like in moments, Dr. Keppel, he, Keppel thinks he has the power, right? Like he'll say, oh, obviously you just need to call collect. I guess that's the like answer. You have to call, uh, um, you'll just have to call her. And, and then Columbo will say, oh, I did. Like there's that one upmanship. And, <laughs> and I think it was a great, I don't know. That was a great scene of dialogue. I like that. It's one of, 
maybe a half dozen really great scenes in this episode. Weirdly, we've not talked about like the general quality of it, which is usually something we get to fairly early. Right. But I mean, there's there's a good half dozen scenes in here that are practically masterclasses on how to have Columbo interact with different characters. Oh yeah, yeah. With with uh, either witnesses or just ancillary mm-hmm. people, uh, like the the film editor for um, Robert Culp's company. Which George that, Weiner. That guy, I always think of him first as Fletch's ex-wife's attorney. Okay. And then I think of him as the guy who tells the story about the uh, uh, goyim with a carved tooth in a serious man. It's <laughs> like the two roles I associate him with yeah. constantly. And he's been in a, dozens and dozens of things I've seen over the years. But when I see that guy, though that's one and two, I think of that. Oh, it's that guy who does who did those two things. I got a, I got a one, two, things. three. It's, it's his stuff in the later Mel Brooks movies. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Space, that's right. Spaceballs, space yes. right? To be, right. Or, to be or not to be. Yeah. Uh, that's followed up by uh, a serious man. Right. And then that's followed up by him playing a judge on like eighty shows. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's that he's got a good judge look to him. He does, yes. He's a very he'd be yeah, very good like a Law and Order mm-hmm. itinerant judge. And yet, you know what? He's never been on Law and Order. Really? He'd never had. It seems like he would have been one of the people. Just alternate he's with um, on... Fran Lebowitz there, who who yeah, I, I, he's always surprised not... me when I see her see her as a judge. She's like she's an author. Why is she? Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Anyway, that's another. Yeah. That's for our Law and Order podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> But only the Jerry Orbach years. Uh, I have a question about the Vic Norris character, what you all thought about it. Um, in terms of him as a, like the victim, having some sympathetic portrayal of the victim, if I had any, like, maybe not a big critique, but critique of the episode, I suppose I would have liked, aside from the fact that he's victim of a murder and he seems to have a nice upstanding wife, I, I kind of would have liked just something else in order to sympathize with him. Oh, that's a good yeah. point. I, I don't know. Like, that's a good point. Uh, unless you think there were details that did. I don't, you know what? I, I have to admit, I hadn't thought about that. I, because I just, I, kinda, he's a murderer. He's a murder. I mean, he's the uh, murder victim. Uh, but then other than that, you know, he might have been with this other lady. And that but then was also what was confusing to me. Also yeah. he was a salesman of some kind, which I distrust that. So <laughs> that's an excellent that's an excellent point. That I Cap- I hadn't considered that. This so is capitalist you. is exactly what we have meetings for. Yeah. So, um my my thing huh. is and you mentioned this briefly, I don't know if he actually had an affair with Tanya Baker. I it seemed or like if, he didn't want him to let something go out or he was like i'm not gonna pay you no matter what you did i got the impression that there had been the affair uh, yeah i mean that's okay so i ended up watching this because i watch these with my wife and she does fall asleep periodically so we have to watch them again which is great um so i think i've seen this one four times now goodness okay and each time I, my opinion changes on whether or not he slept with tanya baker it's he slept with her and he's furious or he like he was uh, she he caught her trying to seduce him and figured it out. Hmm. And I can't I there there's just not enough contextual clues. The presumption is always he fell for it. Right. 
But well, isn't there that lot at the beginning? He meant how many other clients have you framed with right. Taker? That's what he right. said. Right. That's I what spoke. that's what implies to me that he is one of those clients. See, that's it implied to me. Well, I can say half the time it implied to me the same thing, and half the time I thought maybe he means he he's telling um, Keppel, "I see through you." Hmm. He's saying, "I see what you're what you're trying to do." And that has taken whatever contentiousness is in their relation. Because obviously, if he tried to blackmail him earlier, they were already having problems. And being in the sales game, maybe he's a bit more attuned to that, doing those sorts of things. Plotting. Yeah. Right. But always, so he may always be, be murdering. He may have seen through that yeah. from the start. That's so I can what, see your point of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just. I will say this. There's no way to feel super sympathetic to a guy who is about to be murdered if you are just watching him literally put entire crackers full of, like, heaped with caviar into his mouth. Right. (laughs) That's true, too. And he's just like, it was killing his ability to respond quickly. Uh, Culp had that weird line, because I don't think it was matched by any other piece of dialogue in the whole movie. But he says... um, uh, enough to become a martyr, and oh, well, yeah, yeah. and I just I really felt like Vic's response was well, that no, he, he was said, only he half says, You have to die to become a martyr, yeah. right? And then Vic says, "Say yes." Yeah, and Vic says that follows, and it just felt like he didn't quite hear what was said because he was so busy eating caviar. Yeah, ah, that's it's like oh yeah, um, okay. yeah, martyrs are good. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, and I felt it's interesting. I felt so bad for, and I believed that Colombo didn't believe that um, Norris's wife had committed the murder. But it was it, it made me dislike um, Keppel's character even more in trying to pin it on her. And yeah. it seemed oh, yeah. like, of course, like he'd actually a hint that I thought that the show provided that this was going to fail is when Keppel cites the statistic of like 70%. Oh, right. Yes. And that seemed like somebody who researched, okay, who would be a likely person to pin this on? And that just, that seemed odd. And I kind of, I thought maybe Columbo's character would follow up on that or I get, it's not a big deal. It was just kind of pushed aside, but that piece of dialogue made me like, it, it made it more clear that Keppel was going to bumble this. I thought that it was going to be, he had researched it too much. He knew, he like knew the facts, but um, the execution would be bad. But then uh, what's weird, that reminds me that uh, the next episode we're discussing, Columbo brings up a fact like that with someone Mm. in the nineties episode. So no spoilers. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to narrow it down. (laughs) <laughs> that's gonna be a 90s episode that's inconsistent oh hey everybody knows which one that is any of the 90s episodes so yeah there was a there was something this is not speaking to a larger point but just something i thought, I thought was entertaining so uh, in Columboese, the language spoken by guilty as fuck people in the world of Columbo, pretty <laughs> yes. much pretty much every sentence translates to i did it but i don't think anyone more than did it did it ever occur to you, detective, or did it ever occur to you, Columbo? So Culp says, almost immediately upon meeting Columbo, did it occur to you, detective? And then he does his little thing. Right. But I was a little disappointed because he didn't say, 
did it ever occur to you? And that's that's a nice rhythm in that sentence. Okay. So what's what's neat is that later on when Columbo is reading back some of the things Keppel says, he puts the ever back in. Oh, okay. He oh. says, did right. it ever occur to you? Yeah. yeah. Nice. I'm proud of him. That's good. Yeah. Mm. You have watched this episode a lot. Yes. I have I've only seen it twice, and I did not. <laughs> I did not. Yeah, it's easy to do. Yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's on there, whatever. Um, anybody else assured by the, the amount of uh, times Robert Culp shoves guns down his pants in this episode? <laughs> Every time he's going to shoot someone, he shoves the gun directly down his pants, and he seems to do it with relish. Uh, loves wonder, it. Loves to shove you, it down his pants. Who do you think did it more? Uh, Robert Vaughn in uh, the cruise ship episode? Oh, or, yeah, it could uh, be. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. He did it there, too. We'll have to ask Richard. Well, he only, he only had to do it once, so... He's, he's I always... was a little bit... Oh, sorry. No, please. Oh, no, it's just when he found the gun, when he um, went into Norris's house after, you know, killing Norris, to um, went through the desk and found a gun, I was a little bit surprised. I was like, oh, maybe just they assume everybody has guns. I if, if, Was that oh. what he went to the house to, like, how did he know Norris? I don't know. I mean, I looked past it. It wasn't a big deal. Right. But... Um, I don't know if he did. He go into? Did you get the sense that he went into the house knowing he, he would find a gun? Um, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I know that one. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Maybe um, because I mean, I, I think with the, I, it's one of those questions where like uh, where he discounted or kind of figured he knew who had done it for real uh, from the start. Um. Like, like, I actually kind of, I think it goes in with, when do you think that he definitely knew that it, or, like, more than 50% uh, suspected Keppel, that it was him, so he could completely cut everybody out, everybody else out, as being the murderer. Like, not, like, knowing for sure that, no, it wasn't... It wasn't Mrs. Norris. It was nothing from that direction. But he figured, like, oh, no, it's this Keppel guy. Like, when do you think that was? Do you think it was maybe he, from back when he saw the tape player in the lobby? Do you think it was It's not. He early? didn't know. I, I think he honestly didn't know what the tape player was for, because that, that is a rather specific use that I don't think he would have encountered But it before. seems like he had, he had counted out uh, Mrs. Norris pretty, pretty, pretty early on. Like, almost right I away, feel... I think. I think he just thought she's a nice lady. Uh, and I do feel like he maybe got Keppel. He was suspicious of Keppel when he found out that the film had been returned to the vault. And then he knew for certain when Keppel had an easy answer for returning it to the vault. Because oh, that okay. easy that easy answer is always the giveaway. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, also, it seemed like the, the guns in the off, even though I know it was the 45, it didn't match the 22. But, but a guy who's like... got a million guns around, right. well, maybe some... now... the guy who's got a million guns around uh, about 25 feet away from someone uh, being shot, it might be a safe bet. Maybe. I just love Somehow. that he's he's an expert on sales techniques and you walk into his office and there's a billion guns. <laughs> It's like, that's an easy sales technique. You can make a dude buy anything. <laughs> right, yes. Um, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, what, if we, what else have we, have we missed out on? I think we've we covered of... I mean, I'm, I'm looking at my notes, and we've 
pretty much covered all of, like uh, the main salient points of the episode. Uh, one thing I, I wrote down: uh, the golf course scene uh, where Columbo is pretty much just straightforward, telling him, "I know you did it. I'm going to get you." And uh, there is a vast difference in height between uh, Peter Falk and Robert Culp, but uh, the scene where he's actually accusing him, uh, Culp and Falk, they're about eye to eye in that scene. Mm. Like, directly mm. looking at each other, they've got, like, whatever, you know, the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, the hail and everything, re- they're looking right at each other, eye to eye, and they've brought them pretty much to even height. On the... Like, when they're nice. standing by the tree, yes. you mean? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're looking at each other eye to eye. Okay, to, so there's... Yeah. There's two different shots there. And you're right. When they're doing a close-up, they are eye to eye. Where he's telling them, is... it's just a matter of time, yeah. Yep. And Culp is kind of leaning down, though, at the time. Because there's a longer shot of him retrieving the ball from behind the tree. And Culp is actually standing on a little hillock. Which makes which makes Falk look like a smurf. Right, but when they're actually in the thing where he actually yes. says it, they cut to a shot where he's looking straight at him in his eyes and tell him. Well, here's yeah. a we should give some some shout outs to Richard Quince. Quine who's yes. Quine. No, he's who, a, he actually has a pretty long career just directing actual films, not just TV shows. Yeah, and, and not, nothing I don't think nothing I don't think of as being huge that everybody would know, but a lot of really good stuff. And he solves this problem in a fascinating way. He keeps leveling them uh, from eye shot, yeah. but putting them really far apart. Yeah. So there's there are tons of scenes where Falk is still shorter than uh, than Culp, but they're literally positioned 12, 15 feet apart. Well, I think I think and a lot of that came it. from his experience in directing the pilot for the Mickey Rooney Show, in nineteen fifty four. <laughs> I think that you, really, really informed his work in this episode. And uh, uh, yeah. you anyway. are correct, and you know it. Yeah, that should be it. <laughs> That's when he yeah. solved that problem. Yeah. Anywho, well, uh, I was just. Sorry. Just thinking, that was that's oh uh, no, it's just that's really interesting when you think about the emphasis on body language, like the direct emphasis where they they talk about like Columbo mentions that he observes this sort of, this sort of thing of body language and that Dr. Keppel says he knows body, like he cites the term body language and that there is that, that you pointed out that emphasis on their positioning and and that they were on equal footing there. That's really interesting. I hadn't noticed that and considered that link. Yeah, there's a there's yeah. a, I think there's a lot of that in this episode where okay. yeah, it was, and this guy never did another Columbo, did he or no? The no, director I didn't. See didn't another one on this list. Uh, the writer had done a couple other ones, but I don't think the director did this. Did other ones, so yeah. So good for you. You should have directed more Columbos, Richard Klein. <laughs> Let's find the man. Let's find his family. Yeah, come on, man. Him Dig him up. Do do a revival or Dig something. And he actually, he's from uh, Detroit, Michigan. I'm seeing. So, good for you, somebody from Michigan. So you probably you probably know him. No, I'm sure I do. Passed away in '89. <laughs> yeah, my freshman year of high school. There you go. Really. Should we uh, Should we start wrapping Let's this start up? wrapping this up. Um, so yeah, we'll, right. we'll kind of go around people's uh, final thoughts, uh, where it kind of sits uh, in their estimation of uh, Columbo episodes over the whole uh, spectrum of the deal. Uh, we'll start with our guest. Jeannie, uh, what, what did you think of this one overall, and uh, how would you put it with uh, Columbo episodes you've seen? Again, like, I experienced watching Columbo 
when I was a kid, so I can't necessarily situate it as like it's better or worse than any other episodes. But um, I really enjoyed it just as from like a writer's point of view. Um, well, yeah, I go on that a bit. Like, uh, like the structure of it, the structure, I mean, within the Columbo structure, the structure of this particular one, uh, what appealed to you in that way about it? Um, oh, the structure in this particular episode? Right, um, yeah. I mean, it, it follows, I'm trying to think. You're going to edit some of this out, right? Not, uh, not uh, yeah, probably no. not. So just go ahead, go ahead, think it out. The okay. folks who listen, the, the t- five people who listen to this love that sort of thing, so it'll be fine. All right. No okay, problem. I'm, just yes. I'm like thinking through it. No, that, that's um, a great. Yeah, that, that's a good process. Well, just as, just as a, I mean, well, and it's actually this very speaks on some level to Columbo in terms of the meta nature where we're watching him think aloud without voiceover, which is actually that's what's really interesting to me. Oh, there, yeah, a that's a good point. To have films with voiceovers, and I'm not against voiceover, but it's so interesting that we don't get voiceover in Colombo and yet it's so much about his process oh, of thinking yeah. and trying to figure something out and bouncing ideas off of someone, um, usually the, mur- the murderer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was very, I don't know, just from a writer's point of view, the dialogue is really interesting. Um, yeah. No, I mean, Sorry, that, I that's a really good point. I never really thought about that in terms of, yeah, it's such a, like a, the, direct character point of view but then you don't hear his internal thoughts but yet they're always well most of the time they seem to be able to get those across through actions through what he says you actually know what he's thinking and i think peter falk as an actor was great at that where you knew just through certain expressions certain motions and everything you knew exactly oh no i never thought about doing this whole thing and watching the show i never thought about that the lack of the uh yeah, like a voiceover. That that's actually that's a great point. Yeah. Well, the tension huh. between two, like what he when he's thinking aloud, it's not always actually what he's thinking. Right. right? And that's right. A lot yeah, because a lot of times he's kind of tricking someone, and yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, good. Now, now the last five or so we have to do. I've got a different <laughs> element to think about. Finally. Better, better late than never, I guess. Uh, me, I, so this one, I always kind of thought of it a long time as like with my favorite Robert Culp one, but then watching it again, yeah, I put it down to number two, I guess it, it's, it's a good episode. I think, I think this is Culp's best performance of the three and a quarter he is in, uh, but just because of the weirdness and the kind of strained nature of the mystery itself and the murder itself and the plot it, it's not the strongest one of his episodes, but for mm-hmm. him and for the uh, the Peter Falk aspects and him playing Columbo and doing the investigative work, I think it's very good. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's I don't think it's the best cult one, but I enjoyed it a great deal. I liked it. Uh, John. Yes, sir. Uh, what would you rate this? <clears throat> well, uh, this was always my second favorite cult. Okay. But right behind Death Lends a Hand. Right. But the more the more I'm watching it, the more I think of this as a real showcase for what Culp is capable of doing as an actor. Oh, yeah. No, acting-wise, yeah. he's, he's, he's great in this. So good. And I think uh, his interactions with Falk are fantastic. They have such chemistry, you can see why they kept bringing him back. Um, 
I, I mean, you're contractually obligated to bring Robert Culp onto every 70s a- a adventure show. Yeah. But he really fit well on Columbo and it was a nice touch. Got to use you know, his interesting kind of uh, humor of frustration. Yeah. There's just, something just really the compelling he, about yeah. Yeah, the way he gets annoyed with uh, Peter Falk is great. And, and uh, Laura and I were talking about this last night watching it, that... Oh, Robert Culp doesn't have an enormous range, but the like the three episodes he did in the seventies, uh, uh, Columbo's, they're just slight enough differences. There's mm-hmm. just enough subtlety to each of those characters <clears throat> where oh, it's him doing it, but they are very, very different guys, and right. it's something you wouldn't necessarily ascribe to uh, Robert Culp, but he does it very, very well across all three of them. Yeah, I think he has a pretty interesting capacity of playing the same character in different ways because his his um oh what's his name in uh greatest american hero bill i don't know uh but his character in, in greatest american hero is effectively kelly robinson from i spy oh. there's not a huge difference but he plays them in very different ways he's not you know, the bemusement that he has as, I want to say it's Bill Robinson. I No, it's Kelly Robinson. It can't be. Anyway, sure. uh, they have a different ways of, of playing, you know, his bemusement or his easygoing or when he starts to put his foot down. When is in his older incarnation, it's a little more frustrated and whiny because he's he doesn't have that arrogance of youth anymore. I, I think he's got, he's a really interesting kind of, of actor, I guess a character actor. But in that same way that Jack Nicholson is, where every role is just Jack Nicholson at a different dial setting. Oh, uh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Bill Maxwell. Bill Maxwell, by the oh, way. Okay. Um, so anyway, that being said, great range for him. Such an interesting choice to put Chuck McCann in uh, that I'm actually really attracted to this episode because I just want to make sense of that casting. Mm-hmm. It is kind of a rough story. Uh, I don't know that it ever comes together completely, but the scenes are absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. So at the very at the very least, I want to give this one uh, eight out of ten raisins. They got iron. They're full of iron. They're healthy. But they're no bananas. But they're no bananas. Bananas for our next episode. But yeah. Um, all right. I got it That's wrong. Just... I'm so glad to have something new to say based on the episode. By the way. What do you mean? Raisins. They're healthy. Oh, sure. Full yes. of iron. Definitely. That's the weirdest line in the episode. It's very, very, very strange. Anyway. Uh, well, uh, Janie, thank you for doing the show. And, and um, folks want to see what you're working on these days. Actually, uh, first off, uh, your book, The Glass Eye. Uh, do you have a preferred place online where they should go and look that up and uh, hopefully seek to purchase it? Amongst all uh, the online booksellers, do you have one that you'd rather they go to or... No, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's hard to resist the Amazonian Goliath. I, right. I don't like Amazon on my site, but, um, but it's funny. Oh, sorry. Yeah. But if, if like someone has an independent bookstore nearby, you can order through Indie Bound or figure out how to get to your nearest independent bookstore. I'm a big fan of independent bookstores, but Amazon works too. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, your your other ongoing writing, or where should they be looking uh, to see updates on that and what you've got in the works and whatnot? Oh, um, I'm not on social media. Uh, God bless you. Yeah. <laughs> Keep to uh, that. 
It makes it a lot oh, easier. Oh my to... god, keep to that. Um, it makes also uh, I, I just like humanity better yes. now. Yeah, <laughs> that's a way to go. Um, but my website, um, www.genievanasco.com. And, and so what... I, I post oh, new writing there. And, yeah. and uh, what do you have coming up? You mentioned uh, earlier briefly the the Times is doing something. This is probably going to go up uh, a couple of weeks from now, probably uh, late January, very early February. Where should people be looking for things around then? Oh, um, I You're don't, allowed I, to say, I don't know. He does this. Actually, oh, I'm sorry. I like, I like to, <laughs> to, to. I don't know. To, I'm, I'm, to ensure yeah, I'm, the I'm, show I'm, is timeless, I want people to peg <laughs> specific dates <laughs> to whatever is coming out. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm working on a longer project now, so I don't know when I'll have um, okay. any so it's just, shorter. Uh, okay, so yeah. I should go to your site, see what's coming up, get updates, yeah. whatnot. Okay, good, good. All right. Yeah. Well, thank I you would, for uh, doing I'd this. I'd like to, to go ahead and, and also really recommend the book. I found it an incredibly touching memoir and very gripping and very engaging and written in a in both a lovely and a loving way. Thank you. Thank you. My so. pleasure. And I'm sorry, I have not yet read it, but it is on my list of things to read uh, very soon, and I will. Uh, oh, I, I, okay. I promise you that. So but yeah, it's definitely, it is definitely on my list to, to read soon, because John has said great things about it. I've read very good reviews, so yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, definitely want to. So folks, should definitely check that out. The Glass Eye. Look for it. Uh, buy it at an independent bookseller, and if not... Amazon's got everything in the world, so it'll be there for sure too. So we can't we can't help that world doomed. Anyway, uh, John, what do you do? You have anything coming up soon besides this uh, podcast, or no? In the next couple, of weeks? <laughs> yeah, you can find me on this amazing new podcast about Columbo. Yeah, and I uh, uh, I think uh, my blog should all be back up uh, by the time this goes live. Right. So if you haven't been keeping up on your Episode reviews of USA Network's 1990 to 1993 late night basic cable television. Why haven't you? If you haven't. And why haven't you? They're back now and gone and forgotten. Uh, otherwise, just go to calamityjohn.com and you can find everything I'm doing. Bye. And, and, and uh, Jeannie, you know, this is, this is a real top shelf operation, right? <laughs> it's a couple of guys talking on Skype about Columbo episodes, and, and one of them's got uh, a swamp thing recaps yeah. on the side, and the other guy. Uh, he's he's got this, and so Don't that's it. it. So, like boy, proud. this is gonna this is gonna this is gonna really I really locked, amp up those I sales, those book sales. Into the swamp thing. I so, myself into the swamp things. Be there. sure, be sure you you tell your publisher you got this one. This was a <laughs> this was a good this was a good get for you. Like, oh hey, guess what? You wanna you wanna you wanna get a press release about this out? I got uh, on the Just One More Thing podcast. This is gonna do it. This is gonna this is gonna put me on the uh the nonfiction list. Anyway, that's just one more thing for this time. If you want to listen to other episodes of this fine show, go to jmtpodcast.com or look up uh, your uh looks up on your favorite podcast app in the TV and film section, uh whether it's Stitcher, iTunes, uh whatever the heck thing Google's got going on though, but it uses uh, do that too. Uh, if you want to uh, follow us along for uh, much more regular updates on Twitter, we're JMT Podcast there. On Tumblr, we're JMT Podcast, where uh, John posts screen grabs and further thoughts about the episodes, uh, which are kind of fun. If you ever want to write us an email, uh, we'll, we'll be answering some pretty soon. Columbo at the CityS.net. Uh, we love getting uh, the responses from you folks and whatnot. Uh, that's it. Uh, we'll be back uh, pretty soon. We're trying to get a more regular schedule these things as we get down towards the end. Again, thank you, Jeannie. Uh, you're a wonderful guest, and yeah, I'm 
it's, it's nice to have somebody on uh, who's been watching this for a very long time as well. Uh, I'm RJ White. I'm John Morris. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. And good night. Oh, listen, just one more thing. And yes, as we just said, we love getting uh, correspondence, emails from our listeners, and uh, once in a while we like to uh, take a chance to actually respond and read them on the air. And so yeah, here, here we go, we got a little bit of viewer mail here. Uh, here's our first one. Dear John and RJ, thanks for the weeks and hopefully many more months at the rate we go, yes, of genuine <laughs> insights and entertainment on all things Columbo. The format and freewheeling just never ends on the few casts I've listened to. I'm undeniably hooked. Your format is excellent. Your various theories on Columbo. He basically crashes established, pre- established premise. Existing TV shows just blows them up, detonates them. Is one of my favorites so far. John, that's your... That's mine. That's right. That's great. It's a good one. Like All your senses of both humor and inside baseball trivia are impressive. And it's just now we're a fun, fun, fun. Love the self-deprecation. Quote, we only get about two emails every three months. That's actually true. I hardly believe that. I'll keep uh, keep going there. Uh, it must be five at least. Smiley face. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, greetings and appreciations from, Eng- from a college English instructor. I teach students to deliver speeches and write essays. They're banging down the doors into my classes. <laughs> Uh, from Green Bay, Wisconsin, go Packers! Go keep Packers! Up, and keep up the great work. Sounds like you're down to last reading the episodes. We are to the Miz and Boom, Timothy Meyer. Thank you, team. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, thank you, team. Team, team, uh, t- team, Timothy. <clears throat> team Packers. Uh, what I was thinking of. So, oh, yeah. Team Packers. Yeah. Uh, we got this one from Tony. Uh, Tony says, absolutely love the podcast. Thank you, Tony. I'm a big fan and a longtime listener and repeat listener of JMT. Good, thank you. We like to say uh, jumped. We like to cut that out of jump, sure. save us some time. Uh, he reminds us that uh, piano bars with electric Wurlitzer organs actually existed on airplanes. At least American Airlines did it in the 1970s, according to this article in the Wall Street Journal. Oh, it's he's so cut, weird. I, I don't like the, ad, the idea of the added extra weight. Uh, for some reason, yeah. That would frighten me if that was there. Like, you the, don't need, it's you don't need, piano, a, you need right? an organ. It's like ugh. it's that it's that we've seen so many hundreds of silent movies over the course of our lives that we see pianos crashing through things. Right. Actually, yes, that's a good point. I think that's it because I, it's like a sports goofy thing, like a like a butterfly is going to land on it, and, and you, you order it, you add it to it like an airplane. It's just it's too much weight, and it's not. Yeah. End up with like an airplane seventy six thing or whatever. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> All centered on the organ, uh, but he also uh, gives us a photo that ran in the Wall Street Journal off duty section D eight Saturday. Sunday, October 28th, 29th, oh. 2017. I love your detail. I am excited about I that. I know. Like, the specific, like, yeah. <laughs> but uh, thank you, Tony, for the photo and the article. I'm going to link them up on the blog after this goes out. Good. Uh, and I've got another one to read uh, from David that I didn't get his last name, but David, I appreciate this one. He just goes by that. It's like uh, Madonna and Cher. And Sting. And Lord. And mm-hmm. else. Yeah, it's just that. And uh, uh, Brian Wilson on those days that people just go, hey, Brian. Hey, okay. Hey, Brian. Yes. Dear John, uh, bothered by images of Frank Colombo marrying Kate when she was 15? Sure. This is so good. Yes. Don't worry. Frank has a younger brother, Philip, who is Kate's contemporary. Oh, this is weird. They're, 
this is there was a bit of controversy when Phil didn't marry an Italian girl, particularly one with such a peculiar sense of humor. She never lets Phil forget his hero worship of his older brother, referring to her husband as lieutenant, yeah. to all of her friends and family. Everyone is in on the joke, including Frank and Rose. Rose? Do we know Rose is... I don't know what that is. Yeah, I'm not sure what oh, that is. David, exactly. did you just throw? Did you just throw an OC into the established universe? I don't uh, know what that is, uh, but yeah, okay. You're messing up with the OTP, uh, including Frank and Rose, oh. who find it convenient to let Phil and Kate look after dog and car from time to time. There, I've just seamlessly integrated Mrs. Columbo yeah. into the Columbo verse. Feel free to drive RJ insane. Yeah, I don't I'm not think a big fan of that. You but integrated right. it. Seamless is a bit much. Because you created an entirely different person named Rose. <laughs> Rose Columbo, who was not there at all in the start. I still love this. Whatever. I'm going to have to... We're doing one more Mrs. Columbo, and I really... Oh, no! Really... We're, we're at least one, maybe two more Mrs. Columbo. Oh, I want to do two more. No, but I think, I have, I think I uh, our plans, it. it might be two, but yeah. At least one. I would love to do two. Yeah, uh, yeah we got to come up with our own theory on, on how to integrate it. But uh, in the meantime, RJ, take the mic. Well, uh, integrate it... A desperate, desperate network <laughs> watching a hit who had no good shows at the time. So whatever. Definitely All right, our, our next letter comes from Douglas LeBlanc. Uh, I want right to tell you we can turn to Columbo's sense of humor to settle the question of his glass eye. Like uh, we've talked about this before, whether or not Columbo has a glass eye, because everybody knows Peter Falk had a glass eye. So it, it's always like the question: Did Columbo have one too or not? But he points out in. A Trace of Murder, Columbo invites Patrick Kinsley, the homicidal forensic specialist, to join him in interviewing Kathleen Calvert because, quote, having three eyes on this case is better than one. And, spoiler alert, we may <laughs> discuss this one very, very, very soon. Yeah, we should watch that ASAP. Yeah, oh, gosh, maybe it should be the next episode we cover. I don't oh, know. Let's not get ahead of maybe ourselves. It, maybe okay. it should be number 60... 65 uh, who knows let's check the let's check the budget and make sure we have the yeah uh, the we money. Can actually have the rights to do that but no that that's a good one because i did not yeah anyway we'll, we'll we'll get to it we'll talk about it but that's a very very good way to point it out and it's to me it kind of pretty much settles that whole question yeah yeah also the fact that one of his eyes doesn't move was doing yes, it for me. exactly but <laughs> yes that that's that's the next could be excellent could be point anything. yes uh, this one from Victor Jones says, I'm glad to hear you back on the air. I enjoyed Bird in the Hand, too. You forgot the ellipses. Those are so important to the title. I know. Yeah. It's, I enjoyed A Bird in the Hand. Dot, the dot, latest dot. Yeah, you got to do the dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Uh, but I'm disappointed that in almost 90 minutes of discussing the episode, there was no mention of this being Jackson Gillis's final Columbo script. I felt uh, that when she sent, uh, when he sent this in, I felt bad about that. It's like, oh, right. Yeah, yeah I it is. And, that. Um, I actually, you know, of course, being in double disciplines as a Superman archivist, oh. uh, J- Jackson Gillis is extremely important to how the public embraced Superman as a, a an American folk myth. Wait, wait, how? Wait, what? He was a script writer and script editor on the Adventures of Superman radio show, which I'm oh sure. Oh my god, you- really? The most popular radio show for something like seven years running. Really, I didn't know and that. Then, wow. And then he uh, adapted and wrote scripts on the television show as well. So the George oh. Reeves. Wow. So yeah, he's uh, absolutely. Besides having like this terrific record as a writer in television, he's exceptionally important to 
what I will laughingly call my field of study uh, in how Superman has, you know, paralleled and helped advance American culture over the last 80 well, years. No, I mean, that, it, it, no, I, you covered it in the last, like, you did the self-deprecating thing, but no, that is such <laughs> an apparent, it's such an important character yeah. for popular culture. And he probably helped establish so much of that, what people perceive as that character. Oh, yeah. For, like, the, the, far beyond the nerd oh. comics, but the stuff that actually got out to people. Yeah, people know... Uh, yeah. By the time Chris Reeve was in the movie, people knew who George Reeves was, but not the comic book Superman Exactly, yeah. So that he had much more influence <clears throat> on that mm-hmm. than... Wow, I, I had no idea. I that's can't a, believe that's I amazing. missed it. That's, that's uh, incredible. Victor, Victor also goes on to say, no mention of Steve Forrest either, who starred uh, in Genesis Spies Like Us. Uh, well, Victor, we, well, we definitely you, mentioned John Landis in that last you, episode, but not... If you knew, if you knew, why do you want us to tell you? You tell us. You right. tell us. Um, yeah, so I'm going to hang that one on RJ's door, because I didn't know that Steve Forrest was in Spies Like Us. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. I've only seen that once, because what? it's Spies Like Us. I saw it in the theater as a kid, yeah. and then I've seen it many times, and it's uh, it's a weird film. Some parts are okay, some parts are not, but yeah, I remember Steve Forrest. That's the main thing I know him from, because I saw it young, and it's, well, that in the uh, wildly popular uh, Paul McCartney song. From it. So yeah, yeah uh, hey, there was hey, a bomb. What do you a... say? Spies like oh my <sighs> god. Yeah, uh, there was <sighs> a bombshell, like a blonde bombshell in that movie, and wasn't she like oh, Donna Dixon? Acro- Donna Dixon. Well, no, that she she was um uh, she's Dan Aykroyd's wife has been for like yeah. twenty like they've been yeah, married yeah. for like three decades or something. But yes. they did that they did that thing that it, they were married at the time or at least dating at the time. Yes, I think so. And yeah, that, yeah. They do that thing that so many actors do, which is. They arrange a scene where they're they're in with their wife, where their wife takes you know at least some of their clothes off, and you can see how hot they are. Right. And I just always feel that's like bragging. It's just like look at this, well, boys. No, especially for uh, Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and also that film, it, it's wonderful because uh, Landis always likes to throw other filmmakers into his movies. Mm-hmm. So you've got I think one or both of the Coen brothers are in there as like CIA guys along with B.B. King I remember B.B. King yeah yeah well when you see B.B. King in that scene either one or both of the Coen brothers are the guys standing behind him silent with like uh, machine guns or something and sunglasses wow and it's a scene with the the, um, drive-in movie theater Victor, are you happy? Are you happy now? Yeah, there we go. Where's We're talking Steve about Forrest. Yeah, Where's we, your John Landis. Yeah, we know the spies like us. We know that goddamn movie, <laughs> frontward and backward. Don't worry. If we I didn't like mention the... Steve Forrest being on film, it's because we chose not to, not because we overlooked it. We this is a marathon. It wasn't necessary. It's we not have a, a sprint. long game. It's a not a sprint. Game. Uh... Anyway. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I just want to say, by the way, I sounded like kind of disparaging of Dan Aykroyd earlier. I love Dan Aykroyd. No, he well, actually, I remember um, in college people referred to him as former comedian Dan Aykroyd. Oh, I remember that too. And that was back in the nineties. Yeah, but actually that was like, kind of true. Yeah, no, it still is. But yeah, <laughs> definitely true. 
Yeah. He was really good. Pear, pear-shaped former comedian, Dan Aykroyd. Oh, terrible. And that was like in 1996 or something like that. That uh, poor guy. But he loves UFOs, drinking. He has he a beautiful wife. Yeah. And, and he's got this skull-shaped crystal vodka. He makes vodka skull-shaped that... vodka. He owns I... a blues chain. What the fuck? He's doing what he he's wants. Fine. I, don't I don't know. It's... Uh, I, I, I just came up. Trying. I just came up here to record this from watching... Um, um, coming to America and, and mm. lamenting whatever the heck happened to Eddie Murphy and the turns he took in his career and the weirdness of that. Right, and, it's, right. and you know, the common thread there, it's Landis. Mm. Yeah, it's you're the, right. It's the touch of John Landis. John Landis, everything he touches turns strange. Look at like Max. Son. Look at yeah. Max. For Christ's sake. No, no. There's no. There, there, there's no like comedy. But up, up, up thing. It's look at it. Look at the papers. It's a people. warning. It's a warning. Yes. Glad we could get you guys this other full length podcast to discuss exactly. letters and John Landis. Yes. And, and going to the last one. <laughs> Lucky this person coming after all of this. Uh, our last uh, emails from Tony Norton, who writes. Hello and reviews. You've discussed the instance of Columbo possibly planting evidence to get a confession slash conviction. I've been watching NBC 2007-2009 series Life. I remember the promos for that, but I never watched the show. It's, it is set in favorite. Los Angeles, like Columbo. In the second season, the precinct got a new captain from the NYPD. He's learning the team and catching up with their cases. And at one point, he asked, Wait, don't you plant evidence out here? That's actually really funny and great. That's a good line. I yeah. like that. Fuck which, New York, right, LA? Which, Come on. But also, it makes me more apt to want to see that thing than I was before from the NBC promos. Which, eh, that's on the uh, promo cutters for NBC. And you think those people would be paid a lot more than I am. So, there you I go. Think they're, uh, I think I'm sure they're overwhelmed with guilt right now. Oh, I'm sure they are, because they're all listening to this. All right. No, they just feel it. They just feel it in the atmosphere. Yeah. Thank you for writing letters, everybody. Yes, thank you very much. Them. Thank we, you, we... Victor, for giving us a chance to talk about Jackson Gillis and well, also no, surprising that... spies like us. Yeah, no, that was actually uh, fun to get into that. Uh, but yeah, if you actually want, if we, as we said before this uh, last segment, write to us, Columbo, at thecds.net. We like... Uh, getting this just to know people are out there listening to the thing. People are out there still enjoying Columbo because you never know because uh, it's not on Netflix. So um, who knows if people are still enjoying it or not. Uh, oh, but maybe yeah. Adam Sandler got the got the rights. For his oh, Netflix good. Video. Really? Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's, that's Sleep not... well. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, yeah. Keep writing us. We like getting those. And hopefully we'll do this again another one or two times before we're uh, done with this whole deal. And then we'll start the podcast uh, where it's all leftover emails for like uh, <laughs> three episodes over two years. So yeah, we'll do that. That's our thing. Murder, she wrote. Murder, she wrote. <laughs> it's going to be Murder, she wrote. The next podcast, Murder, she wrote. Let's do it. Uh, Cosby Mysteries. Anyway, there we go. Ah. Uh, yeah. Too soon. <laughs> 